Hello, this is Property Matters, a weekly catch-up on all matters property, supported by Fairview International Property Consultancy and auctionproperty.co.uk. And we're live every Sunday from 10am, YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn and the website propertymatterstv.co.uk. Leave us a Google review if you would, if you're watching on the website, if you're on social media, you can comment in the comments section below. We're talking about your issues that you want to discuss with us and the email address if you ever want to send them is hello at propertymatterstv.co.uk. Catch us on the move if you uh, can't watch the whole show in person live on the day with a podcast version, an audio version, which is available uh, 24 hours after the Sunday broadcast at 10 a.m. on Monday. Get it from wherever you uh, get your podcasts from. Just uh, search Property Matters TV. The show is also broadcast on Dilsey Radio as well across the week. Let's have a look at uh, this week's uh, questions with our property expert, Joe Joshi. You're on the rack today, Joe. I know. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one actual story, which is kind of like a question, and I just wanted to really uh, cover this off with you because it's quite interesting, um, uh, and that is the fact that um, uh, they're looking at a claim here. So a tenant, um, or, or the, the particular lady here, Sandy Bastin, saying that, um, that they had a case to look at whereby a landlord's claim for a full month's rent at the end of the tenancy was on the basis that the tenant had failed to serve the proper notice to end the tenancy. Uh, the tenant, in response to the claim, argued that they had served notice to the end of the tenancy in line with the terms of the tenancy agreement and that all rent had been paid in full. The tenant's evidence to support their statement was that there was no rent arrears, including bank statements and email correspondence exchanged during the tenancy with the landlord. And uh, basically what they're saying here is that the, the tenant had actually done their homework and kept all the receipts and proved everything. And yet the uh, landlord thought that there had been a month missed, but was unable to prove that. And therefore, the adjudicator who looked at the case basically says, look, the requirement is that if you're a landlord, you need to have all your ducks in a row and all your paperwork to prove that there is a physical breach. If you don't have that, then we can't award you anything, whatever what the other tenant, uh, what the tenant puts forward. So just thought it was quite an interesting point for us to discuss about... Uh, how tenancies can go wrong when people fall out and what you should do to protect yourself, either side. Yes, I mean, with, with landlords and tenants, it's always about, first of all, it's about communication. I always find that history has shown us that um, if people are not communicating well um, or if there is a particular reason that they've had a fallout over, it could be something as trivial as, you know, they've had a, a puppy and they haven't actually told the landlord that they've actually now in a period of 18 months of, of staying in a property, for example, uh, acquired a puppy, which may have been a gift, may have been something that they've done and now they have it, but they didn't tell them. And then, you know, the landlord says, you breached my, my tenancy agreement. You know, you didn't tell me about that. So if the tenant had not told them, then of course that would be deemed as a type of breach. Uh, they would need to have that scenario uh, cleared. But if at the same time, we've known of, of the similar scenario as an example, where they have communicated it and the landlord has said, well, I understand that. And of course, but you must either, you know, give me an increased deposit at the moment or, you know, write into it that any other damages that's caused by the, the said puppy, you wouldn't have to, you'd have to make uh, remedial um, changes and, and, and updates on it. But when it comes to, um, landlords and tenants who think that they've done all the right things and the landlord is probably just a little bit bitter that he's 
you know, um, not got it the way he wants it, then of course he will start to say, well, actually, you've taken a, a 12 month tenancy, you give me one month's notice. And what most people tend to do is they don't pay the last month's rent on the basis that they're going to say, well, you owe me the deposit. So that one one counters the other sort of thing. You know, it's, con it's a contra payment back. But if there is a reason, like I said, let's say that there's some damage or something that has uh, been effective of that agreement, then the landlord is within their rights to say, well, actually, this was damaged. But the problem there is is a bit after it's a, it's a stable door job. It's, you know, you know, you, you you're, you're talking about it after the stable door has been shut behind you. So they've now exited. Um, they've agreed to, to leave. They've gone. And the landlord's gone in there and said, well, actually, there's this breach, this damage, and I want to have it, but they haven't paid me. So I don't want to pay their deposit back, but they actually haven't paid me the last month's rent. So the argument comes about the, the deposit. But if they have paid the deposit and they've contracted it in the first place and accepted, then there's no arguments. But if they haven't paid the last month's rent and have still kept the deposit, then, of course, the landlord is going to turn around and say, you know, I'm not going to pay that deposit because you've actually not, you know, adhered to the terms of the agreement. A landlord has to give two months notice um, after the first six months or at, to the end of the six month part of the 12 month anniversary. So in month four, theoretically, the landlord needs to give notice to the tenant to say, well, at the end of the six months, you know, thank you very much, but, you know, we're going to part company. The tenant, of course, has to give a one month's notice and that might be the way it would work but these things are about communication paul um it is about making sure that you've covered it and then obviously in this particular case the tenant seems to have documented it all and got it right part of me says it's a good tenant part of me says there was an agenda <laughs> so the tenant probably thought i know i'm going to face this at the end so i might as well get all my ducks in a row and tell him what i think and part of that is probably you know, their relationship, the landlord and the tenant's relationship that may have soured and it's got to a point where the tenant says, well, I'm going to be protecting myself and I'll be damned if I'm going to give him this and I'll be damned if I'm going to do that. So we find that a lot, really. Um, but most things go relatively smooth. You get one perhaps out of 100 that become, become this way. And of course, when it becomes this way, as this lady's pointing out, it becomes an example one. It just starts to say, well, look what happened in this situation. So it becomes something to refer to. Um, but I think the answer really is that, you know, people should communicate and make sure that they got it. And more than anything else, both tenants and landlords should read the documents that they've signed and agreed to. Absolutely. Uh, Sandy Bastin is the head of adjudication services at Tenancy Deposit Scheme, which is the only not-for-profit tenancy deposit protection scheme in the UK. And she says that uh, both the landlord's rent statement and the tenant's bank statement showed that the tenants had been paid paying rent in full, up to and including the expiry of the tenant's one-month notice, as the landlord had not evidenced a breach on the part of the tenants, or that he had suffered any financial loss, no award could be made. So the key points are, read the agreement, as you rightly say. In this case, the landlord had uh, misunderstood the requirements of the tenant. A tenant must have breached a contractual obligation to make a claim, and the landlord must have suffered a financial loss also to make a claim. 
In claims for rent arrears, we would expect to be provided with detailed rental statements for the entire period of the tenancy, showing the property details, the names of the tenants, the rent due dates, and the periods to which the rent payments relate, along with the date on which the rent was received and the dates for which the rent remaining outstanding was uh, not paid. So interesting, really, that uh, I, I guess the landlord didn't feel that uh, in going to court or go to an adjudication, at least, that he was going to be asked for so much detail. Well, he didn't bargain for that, did he? Um, and no. so, so therefore, he's now going to think twice about it in the future. But it's always easy. It's always somebody else giving advice and saying, well, you should be in your rights to do this. You're the landlord. But the reality of it is that, you know, yes, keep documented evidence, read the contract. Um, and more than anything else, I would say communicate, you know, with your tenants in the correct way in the first from the outset. And you wouldn't have this kind of problem at the end of it. Interesting question here, which I wanted to debate with you, really. Lenders are now granting 95% mortgages without relying on the government scheme. At the same time, these rates, uh, these rates on, um, sorry, at the same time, rates on these high-to-value loans, include, according to Rightmove, have dropped by 0.17%. Now, that doesn't sound a lot, but it's a major step in the right direction. But does it pose a bigger question? Is this the start of the next phase of the property increase cycle? As lenders start to lower lending criteria to get a bigger market share, this will increase competition for those who've been denied a mortgage in the last 15 years due to the stricter lending criteria. And as we talked about uh, last week in the uh, prospects for 2024, if we get a rate drop, this could cause prices, of course, to jump and we could be into yet another risky growth cycle. And if you look at what's happened in London, in this piece here, talking about the inflationary news from London, which is called CHAP, and CHAP is the Council Homes Acquisition Programme, started by Sadiq Khan, and he's given the go-ahead for councils to buy 10,000 properties from the open market. Along with previous news above in this particular piece, this could be quite dramatic on the market. So an interesting piece there. So, you know, we've got 95% mortgages, we've got easing of lending criteria, uh, we've got rates easing back slightly, potentially in 2024, dropping maybe a quarter of a percent or half percent. Are we just not fueling the fire into another spiral upwards? Well, I'm, I'm afraid it's the case of it being a necessity and if it was balanced out, we probably wouldn't have this yo-yo effect. Um, and, and, and that is a governmental thing. It is a, it's a, a, a supply and demand thing that comes in. So here is a situation where though there's a schemes available for 95% through the government, most lenders are now competing against the government's criteria and saying, well, if, if the government are giving this guarantee, and they're prepared to do it at 95% mortgages, and we're having to sort of support the government in lending that money. We will may as well lend our own money, but without the government support. Um, so we're not having to share whatever that share might have to be to the government, number one. Number two, um, yes, if there is a interest a decrease, albeit a small one, it is going to entice you know buyers, especially first-time buyers at this moment, to say, well, look, this is a great time for me to do that, A, because the prices are not so much stable, but in some cases have had a correction. So this is the window of opportunity for me to buy at perhaps the right money um, at the lowest possible rate with the highest possible, um, you know, uh, borrowing 95%. I mean, I haven't put 5% as a deposit down. So all of that makes 
eminent sense in the first time buyers market in their in their view um, and of course whether they're fueling it now or whether they're fueling it in another way the fact is that that will continue to happen whether it happens now or in, in two years time when you know the either the the blues are in or the reds is something will motivate that so it's not going to be but i've always said we've said it here time and time again if there was a another route for investors um, those investors would stay away from having to buy property and fix leaky taps um, those prices probably wouldn't go up as dramatically as one does with the yo-yo effect and first-time buyers would have a steady stream of property available for them to buy at the right reasonable prices going forward but of course, if that was easy, that would become boring, wouldn't it? So they have to make it difficult <laughs> and challenging in order to make sure that people like you and I can still talk about it and people like me can still go out there and, and flog houses. So, you know, it's, it is, it is uh, unfortunately, the lesser of the two evils that there has to happen. Let's move on to uh, a question. I'm thinking of buying a one-bedroom property, which I will use three or four days a week as it's closer to work for me. Therefore, I'm going with a residential mortgage. However, I currently live with my fiancé not too far away. I was wondering about getting a buy-to-let mortgage. I made the decision not to, as using the flat will save me 45 minutes journey time each day. My main reason was I was led to believe my stamp duty would be three times the amount on uh, a buy-to-let. I also found something online that said, however, that if I don't own any other property, I wouldn't pay as much in, as a high stamp duty. I'm a bit confused. I'm not on the mortgage of my fiance's house, nor on any of the bills he covers everything. Uh, do you know what the situation would be for me with stamp duty if I did to go with buy-to-let? Yes, I suppose it's the terminology of um, the buy-to-let. Good question. Um, so if you are going to a lender and say to them, look, I'm looking to buy this property. I'm living with my fiance down the road. Um, I don't want to utilize my first time buyer option uh, situation, partly because as a first time buyer option, you are saying to the lender that you're going to live in that property. It's your main residence. So subsequently, you're not in a position to rent it out without the lender's authority. Um, so therefore, the only option left to you is to do a buy to let. And under a buy-to-let, the stamp duty becomes higher. So subsequently, you have to pay a higher stamp duty. Um, this was always the case in, in earlier years where buy-to-let didn't exist. So people would buy another home or two separate people. So if there's a couple, you know, the, the guy would own a property and the girl would go and buy another one. Or nowadays, another guy would go and buy another one. Um, and, um, you know, they they probably just rent one and, and live in one and that's how it would be but the question really is about the authority the, the permission from the lender um, to allow you to rent the property if you bought it as your own home without the buy to let aspect it's the minute you say that you want to be i suppose uh, what i'm trying to say is the honesty actually costs you here and most people probably wouldn't turn around and say that they bought it and then rented it out or Airbnb'd it for three days and lived in it for four days or whatever the, the circumstances may be. Um, and it may be 
thinking out loud that the holiday let scheme might be the perfect scheme for this particular person um, on the basis that, you know, the costings are less, um, there's less taxation. But I'm afraid the answer to the question really is that it's the word buy to let that generates and, and conjures up the problem of the higher stamp duty and the authority from the lender to allow that person to rent it out under the original mortgage of own ownership as opposed to it being a rented property. So there's a difference between it being a residential and theoretically a commercial aspect for buy to let. Yeah, she can't really live in it if it's buy to let, that's, that's for sure. But one thing is if she could um, stretch to a two bedroom property, of course, she could rent out the other room to a lodger and she could get um, uh, income from the rent-a-room scheme and she wouldn't have the commitment of an AST, an assured That's tenancy. true. That's true. Um, and that way she would actually be able to buy it in her own name as a first-time property and have a lesser stamp duty and have a gain. I mean, again, historically, that's how people used to do. They'd buy a two-bedroom and rent one out. And currently, that's a big thing at the moment because people can't afford to just keep it, keep it to themselves. So what they do is they they're back to where they're sharing. So a sharing situation with somebody, maybe a friend or somebody just that you rent the room out to, um, does exist. And that's where um, even Airbnb has been very popular with some people because they don't want a full-time lodger, but they don't mind somebody at the weekend or, or a couple of people during the week that might come along, especially in places like central London, that they might actually go and share the room, um, which may be a bit more cost-effective. So there are different ways of looking at it, but the answer really is that it's the fact that it's buy to let that actually conjures up the highest stamp duty. Mm. Seeking advice on rent charges and increases. This is an interesting one, Joe, and I'm sure something that's happened many times across the UK in the last 12 months. We have a detached property, property which we let, no previous experience. Um, tenants have been in for five years with no issues and with only one rent increase 18 months ago of £70 a month. We were relying on being advised by the managing estate agent so haven't kept on top of rent increases. Property is rented at 1520 per month but we've been advised market value is now 1800 to 2000 in our area. Some have said don't raise it more than 5 or 10%, others say it should be market value. What's your thoughts? Well, the thing here really is um, we don't get involved with the, the actual contract. And the contract should, and we've had this conversation in a roundabout way in a previous program, the contract should and does state that there is a um, gradual increase that could be considered every year for people that are renting or whenever that time period is. Um, familiarity with a tenant and a landlord, that, that situation of a friendship sometimes overlooks that point because they'd rather have the continuation and someone looking after their property and not want to rock the boat by saying, well, look, by the way, you know, uh, each year you're going to be paying another £50 or £100 or whatever the increase might be. So they, they let it go. And then the current situation happens, which is, you know, the, the scenario we have now. The mortgage rates are, are much higher. The rents are not as high as they are. And people are now not having as much margin. So they're now saying to themselves, well, actually, I've got to go back to that tenant and say to them, I need more money. Most of those tenants know that's going to happen. So they expect a little bit of 
haggling, but they're certainly not going to be looking to backdate it or do it as a regular thing. So the question really comes to the landlord is, do you want to um, rock that situation or do you offer a small increase each year so that you can get it up to a level where you think it is market rent? It's really a, a tricky situation and this is where this, this whole section 21 and so forth plays a part because if and when they fall out, they've got to give notice and they want the house vacated, they can make, have it vacated under those routes at this moment in time. But in future, they're not going to be able to justify that. So they're not going to be able to get the reduction in those, uh, sorry, the, the notice from the, the, the um, courts to say, oh, well, you can just take it back because, you know, you can't afford it. It's, so, it's a huge, huge thing to, to challenge for. But at the moment, I, I think that um, where, where we're concerned, it's, it's about communication again and making sure that you actually build it in and whether it's you as the landlord or whether it's your letting agent, whoever may be in charge uh, to do that, have to got, have got to do that, you know, simultaneously every year continuously. Otherwise you do miss that. So three or four years down the road, you are going to be having a three, four, five hundred pound difference in that, in that rate. Um, and it's difficult to go back to that tenant and say, by the way, you know, you now got to pay another three hundred pounds a month more. You know the answer. I mean, if you if you were in that situation, you're going to say, "Well, I can't afford to do that." Surely, you'd be asking questions of your managing estate agent, wouldn't you? Yeah, you can do, but the managing estate agent will turn around, depending on. I mean, first of all, you know, the word "managing" uh, has has two scenarios. Most agents nowadays operate on a introduction um, basis, and and then you know, some sort of rent collection. They're not actually always managing it. Most landlords don't want to pay the higher rate to manage. And so, but they believe that if a, a tenant has been introduced to them through an agent, that agent is their managing agent. The chances are they're probably not their managing agent. They're probably an agent that they use to find the tenant who might collect the rent and collect his money on a monthly basis. Mm. Um, doesn't necessarily means he's actually employed to do a management uh, part of it um, and it may not be the actual agent's fault so it's about contract and making sure you've got the right terms. Would you say Joe that these sort of disputes are common I mean you know because there is this perception is oh, I'll just get a buy to let property and I'll get a nice little income each month and everybody's going to be happy but you hear these disputes and situations and legal situations developing um you know I mean, obviously there's always the risk there but are they are they common they are common if you don't have that communication Paul it's always you know what they say bad news sells good news never sells um, and in this situation, if you've got a scenario where an agent or a landlord or a tenant have had a dispute, it becomes more highlighted. But if I were to take 100% as a marker, probably 90% of them we never hear about because they're quite happy with what they're going to do. It's only the odd one, but it's the odd ones that actually highlight the issues. And when they highlight those issues, then there's others that sit there and they go, hang on a minute, that could suit me as well. I could do the same thing as well. And so. You know, um, so sometimes bad news isn't always the best news, but unfortunately it's the one that sells and it's the one that keeps people like me and you in our programmes. Final question of the week, and again, this is one I'm sure has been asked many, many times, particularly in recent years. Have you ever bought uh, your residential house in, the in a street with a bad reputation, but it turned out to be okay? 
We're buying a house, but loads of people are now telling us it's in a bad area. Many council houses and people uh, are on benefits there. Uh, but the thing is, we can't afford a house anywhere else. So uh, you could apply this, of course, to a landlord looking to get, you know, you often see uh, in certain places uh, in the north of the UK, you know, some of these properties, 20, 30, 40,000 little terraced uh, in, in, a, in a, a row of old workers' um, buildings, of that sort of thing. Uh, and you see them 60,000, 20,000, and you think, God, that's, you can almost get that on your credit card. But does it come with uh, additional aggression, <laughs> shall we say? Well, yes and no. Um, I think there is it, it's additional aggression if you go into that market with exactly that attitude of thinking, well, actually, you know, um, I've got to pipe money and champagne taste, I suppose. Um, and if you're gonna go out 50, 60,000 pounds or 100,000 pounds or whatever that might be, no matter where it is, whether north, south or indifferently, you know, um, I think most people take that view as the first rung on the ladder or their investment and they've got to put a value on that investment. In terms of what type of person that ends it, some people that are on the benefit schemes are not there out of choice. There are circumstances that are beyond their control that they've had to be put there. But as individuals, they may be really nice people. So it doesn't mean that we've got to tie everybody with the same brush. It's just that, you know, people um, sometimes have sour grapes and, and will turn around and say, oh yeah, that's a bad area you wouldn't do. But if I go back again over the years, we, you know, you and I could probably point out areas that were notoriously bad. Um, and we were always told, you know, don't hang around there too much because this will happen. But today it's the same areas that are currently, you know, modern and, and, and you know, trendy and people have moved on. So time does move those things on. And I know it sounds like I'm giving you a very diplomatic answer here, but the answer really is that it doesn't really matter where it is, as long as you find the right tenant and the right investment return. I will always advocate that any opportunity that you can get, doesn't matter where it is in the country, is a step towards whatever your personal goal is. And sometimes you get lucky. You might think it's a bad area. Everybody tells you it's a bad area, but it might be one that's going to be tidied up soon. They might have an investment. It might be that there's a regeneration program going on there. So I would always say, do your research, check out the area, see what the government, the local government, the council, what planning applications are going in, what is going on, what's going to help that area grow. You might find that it might be a new development with a new shopping mall around the corner and all of a sudden you just stepped into it at the right time, right place. So um, research is the answer. Hmm. I remember many moons ago, I can't remember which property I was buying, but I did go on a Saturday night at about 11.30 and sit outside for half an hour in the car to see what was the, whether there was any noise or parties and similarly also at sort of nine o'clock on a Sunday morning to see if anybody was uh, getting their uh, um, electric saw out or whatever. So uh, I've done my research in the past, but I guess, yeah, going and having a, literally going and living in the street as it were, um, for a short period of time to, to discover what you might find? Well, if you're going to live there personally and make it your residential home, no question in my mind that one should do all of that research and, and more. But the problem is that we now live in a modern world, which means that we actually sit on our butt in our office or in our home on the sofa 
and we go on Google search and we go on Google Earth and we go on Street View and we do all of those things that you know allows you to have that picture and then you make that decision. I have known of people that have bought a property that they've never actually visited and seen only to find that when they get there it's far from what it is. It's amazing what a picture can do. A picture does paint a thousand words and sometimes a picture paints a very pretty picture of that particular property. I know that. I mean I travel around the country and sometimes I have to go there because I, I just don't feel that I'm getting the, the real picture until I've actually turned up there. Um, and then I find that it's, it's not as nice as it is or they've taken a picture of that particular property on a certain angle that actually you know, shows it off better than it really is. So research and, uh, and, and search and, and of course doing your due diligence is most important in any uh, property purchase that you do. And of course, I suppose I've just suddenly thought of something actually, because most areas now have little Facebook groups where you can sit in for that area and see what sort of things people are reporting in there and what people are discussing. So all of that helps as well, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's also these neighbourhood watch type of operations groups that are, are there and they tell you about, you know, who knocked on the door at three o'clock in the morning, who had a you know, pint of Stella in their hand and thought it was a wrong sort you know, all, the, all sorts of... <laughs> Scenario. Well, I mean, yeah, it's quite. Sometimes, sometimes it's quite quite comedy, and sometimes it's it's like tells you the truth of, of what what's going on in the area. But uh, yeah, I think you just got to make sure you research it well. We should be doing some more of these question uh, and answer uh, property matters shows uh, in the near future. So if you do have some questions, hello at propertymatterstv.co.uk uh, will be the address that you can send your questions to Joe. So thank you very much indeed. Hope that was informative. Thank you, Joe, for um, giving us your answers and uh, going on the rack so willingly this week. Uh, we'll see you again for another Property Matters very soon.